The great irony is that most white Americans who want to completely disown any racism in their hearts will look back to the civil rights movement and say, we're a great country because of what happened then. <laughs> and part, and the only way that can really happen is if they don't actually know what really happened then. If you grew up in the United States, it's probably a good bet that you learned, more or less, a similar story about the country's racial history. It goes something like this. There was slavery, which was bad. But after an horrific civil war, slavery was abolished, which was good. Fast forward a century later, and Jim Crow and segregation became problems in the South, which was bad. But after a transcendent man told everyone about a dream he'd had, civil rights were guaranteed for all, which was good. Fast forward another 50 years, and a black man was elected president, which was great. But if all that was true, why is race still at the heart of so many of our pressing issues today? Hello and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and if that historical summary I just rattled off strikes you as, well, incomplete, I imagine you might have something in common with today's guest, HKS professor Khalil Gibran Muhammad. You're a historian by trade, yep. um, and obviously what's happening right now, it feels like uh, re racial relations in the United States seem to be at something of an inflection point. Mm -hmm. um, why is it important to look at modern race relations through a, an historical lens? Because nothing makes sense otherwise. I mean, <laughs> even if we were in... Uh, in a golden era of race relations, it would be important to understand this past. Uh, and I think that's really, in terms of why history is so important, that's exactly what we've been getting wrong. We've been wanting to discard our racial past as soon as uh, we've reached some new moment of, of uh, utopic, uh, mixed, integrated communities that we can all take great pride in. Obama's election, of course, in 2008 was one such moment. Mm -hmm. um, there is no expiration date on understanding our racial history. It's going to always be with us. We don't have to have the um, crises of racial inequality and racial injustice and violence that we are having right now or a political culture uh, that for at least some significant portion of the country uh, uh, is... Uh, exploiting and scapegoating uh, minority communities, be they American or immigrant. So uh, the, the need to actually understand our past is as relevant as understanding our revolutionary past, our colonial past, understanding the role of religion in society, understanding um, the, the formation of capitalism, of, of gender relations. All of these things run through our racial history. Mm -hmm. uh, America just doesn't make sense without it. And therefore, we need to make sure that every generation of young people that come of age in this country understand this history. Um, perhaps the most relevant analogy, um, and one that often makes people uncomfortable, but, uh, you know, Brian Stevenson certainly does it, and I think it really does cut to the heart of the matter. Um, we annually celebrate something called Holocaust Remembrance Day in this country. We built a Holocaust museum in 1993 that took about 15 years from, from inception to uh, brick and mortar 
for the purpose of making sure that that scale of racism and genocide would never happen anywhere in the world. And so Holocaust Remembrance Day is about remembering it for the purpose. Well, why is it that we continue to debate whether or not we need to remember how formative racial ideology was in the settlement of this country with respect to the indigenous populations of this, 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 this land and to this country's development as the first uh, modern democracy, which was a slave republic. I mean, mm -hmm. these things shouldn't be optional, and yet they are. Do you think there are major misconceptions that need to be overcome? Absolutely. <laughs> How do you overcome misconceptions? I mean, here's another analogy. <laughs> Long time ago, we used to be afraid of talking about sex uh, with our young people. And then uh, the, the better uh, angels of our educators took the good wisdom of our uh, scientists and said, you know, the sooner the better, uh, with age-appropriate uh, pedagogy, mm -hmm. um, we're going to teach young people about their bodies. Uh, and because these kids are going to talk about their bodies, they're going to explore their bodies. So um, the prophylactic against the uh, premature use of those bodies by kids in ways that are counterproductive to their futures is to educate them. And so we should be educating Americans and new immigrants who come to this country about these histories um, so that whatever weird feelings they're going to have, they're going to work through them at an early stage. And they're going to get another shot and another shot until they're adults. They're fully formed adults and perfectly capable of understanding that the past doesn't have to be our future. Mm -hmm. So what are those uh, prophylactic uh, equivalents uh, when it comes to race? I mean, what are the things that... Uh, is it, is it that we're not uh, spending enough time uh, grappling with the fundamental problems that our country were born, was born with? Um, or are there specific threads of uh, misconception that, that we need to address? They're both. Mm -hmm. So let's just start with the basic notion that uh, when children annually arrive in kindergarten and they dress up as pilgrims and some dress up as Indians, they're, they're reenacting um, traditions that have been anesthetized over time uh, to obliterate essentially what the very nature of European conquest in America was all about. And I'm not suggesting uh, that it has to be a horror show uh, for these five-year-olds, but we can do so much better uh, to prepare them to think about, so what does it mean to be the, the, uh, the conqueror? Um, do we celebrate that um, or do we say we want to live in a world uh, where we no longer conquer other nations in the name of divinity, uh, some God-given mandate, which was the state of play? Uh, have we actually evolved and do we create the possibilities for evolving by what we teach? So this is really about the curriculum. I just went to my, uh, my daughter who's a freshman in high school. I just visited during back to school night a couple of weeks ago happened to see the big U.S. history textbook sitting there. And I sat down and, and thumbed just the beginning chapters. And I looked at the uh, outline, uh, essentially the chronology at the beginning of the chapter and the end of the chapter. And to be honest, I mean, this is not, this is not someone, I mean, I'm a trained historian. I'm not trying to, to see something that isn't there. But essentially, conquest and slavery are, are sort of aberrational in the presentation of the story. Um, so the desire is to see the colonial experiment as a heroic moment, mm -hmm. as a people fighting against the wilderness, trying to build a nation that, of course, looking back, we all want to thump our chest and be proud of. Yep. And it, it just wasn't that simple. Mm -hmm. 
So we want to introduce the complexity. If we want children in this country, I mean, we do this in STEM, right? If we want our children to be math literate, we don't dumb down math. The whole point is to raise the standards because mm -hmm. they want to compete on a global stage in ways that, that create technology and innovation that will you know, improve life for everyone. Mm -hmm. Well, if we want to improve life for everyone, if we really do believe that all lives matter and by virtue of that we need to go through Black Lives Matter, then we need to talk about black and brown lives at the earliest possible date. Mm -hmm. Because it is true in this country that for too many people, these narratives are written off as divisive and anti-American. Mm -hmm. Give you a very quick example. In Arizona, about five years ago, in a state that passed SB 1070, which is the famous racial profiling act, is the same state uh, where the Tucson School District passed resolutions that made teaching La Raza, which is uh, nomenclature for basically Mexican or Chicano studies, mm -hmm. illegal because it was teaching a history that was, in the eyes of the school board and the school district, anti-American. Mm -hmm. uh, Texas did similar things at the state level. Um, so these are real these are real issues and concerns right now about the struggles over what kinds of history matter in this country and what we're going to be teaching. I honestly believe that so much of the right that supports Donald Trump are products of our failed educational curriculum, not just you know whether the schools are good or bad, but actually what we're teaching people at the earliest possible date contributes to levels of ignorance, which translate into bigotry, which translate um, into threats of revising the 14th Amendment. I mean, <laughs> the list goes on. Mm -hmm. For a lot of people, the history that you've described that has been uh, you know given over the last hundred <laughs> however many years uh, in our schools um, is really the core of, uh, of a great deal of pride. I, I think that's reflected in the Make America Great Again uh, of, that you hear from Donald Trump supporters. What would you tell them about the, the questioning, I guess, of that source of pride? Is, is, it, is it to say that they shouldn't be uh, uh, proud of their country? Yeah, so it's a good question. So, so I would say that it's a false pride, not because people don't have a right to believe in America. Uh, I believe in America mm -hmm. precisely because what makes America great is not that I'm allowed to be here or that my descendants were allowed to be here, but precisely because my descendants, along with innumerable white allies, actually made democracy real and meaningful, even to the poorest of white Americans who have, by my historical understanding, often been on the short end of the stick of the economic pie and even the political pie in this country. Mm -hmm. It is precisely uh, that the African-American journey reveals not only many of the contradictions embedded in the founding of this nation, but also shows the capacity, this is the, uh, the greatness of America, the capacity to actually change and evolve. But that change has often been led by people who were at the lowest end of the uh, economic and political spectrum black people. They never have done it alone. Mm -hmm. They've always done it with white allyship. But that's a story that we often leave out. So, of course, people who feel who have a sense of white fragility and vulnerability, um, who represent generations of that fragility and generation, but they've been told that, that precisely 
the people who share their same economic and political status are actually their enemies. And that's a lie. It, it is actually a lie. Mm. Um, so the only way to dispel that lie, I mean, it's the same way. I want to come back to this because people are uncomfortable. You know, people want to believe that um, there are not lies, that, you know, that's just that professor's liberal opinion. Well, this is the same kind, in my opinion, of debate we have with global warming and climate change. So I'm at Harvard. There are historians. In, so, you know, you can poll other historians about these histories. Are we going to believe the uh, professionally trained, ethically, ethically bound historians uh, to tell these stories? Are we going to believe Bill O'Reilly, who hires ghostwriters to write whatever he wants to write? Um, about this. That's the, that is the same space that we live in with regard to saying that global warming is all made up, that the scientists are lying. Mm -hmm. So my goal is to help advance um, a conversation about the past that is fully embedded in our nation's classrooms at the earliest possible date so that by the time we get to college, we're not afraid to, to have more history um, or think that it's optional, but in fact that as part of our civic education, as part of being fully formed citizens of this democracy, we are prepared to continue that education. Mm -hmm. It always has amazed me how uh the founders of this country, many of them slave owners, were able to somehow put together uh, a founding document that included slavery in it, and yet was also the basis for what ended up being one of the most uh, uh, pan-cultural uh, nations in the world. I wonder, how, how did that happen? <laughs> Well, because they had to live with tremendous contradictions even before they uh, created the founding documents of this nation, the Bill of Rights and the Constitution. They were already struggling with those constitutions, by, by those contradictions. They, by simply appropriating the language of slavery in their petition uh, to King George, um, they set in motion ideas, enlightenment ideas that embedded in those ideas were the possibility for change and transformation that could never be put back. Mm -hmm. The genie was out of the bottle. And so the very language of freedom and liberty that created the nation was also the very language that made possible the freedom and liberty, liberty of the enslaved. And of course, the enslaved led that conversation. <laughs> they held a mirror back to the nation. Mm -hmm. um, if America had not committed itself out of its own sense of, of being enslaved uh, to, uh, to Great Britain, then we might not be where we are today. Hmm. But the fact is that that's what happened. And so that created, in the end, the nation's capacity to grow, develop, and evolve, which is great. But we have to actually stay committed to and we have to understand that at our core in order to ensure that we actually don't move backwards. Mm -hmm. You mentioned before the black public sphere. Mm -hmm. uh, could you explain what you mean by that? Sure. So. There, there are long traditions of uh, populist and elite conversations about the status and future of black life. And it runs the gamut from everything you might expect to see in uh, protest traditions and town hall cultures, um, civic spaces from churches to schools, 
as well as academic thought and debate and a literary world. All of these worlds have long been in play, really, since black people have been here. And therefore, um, my commitment to that black public sphere is to close the gap, particularly in policy spaces, where uh, it is generally uh, considered an object of study or debate, mm -hmm. rather than uh, the subject in the sense that people are at the table communicating from within this black public sphere out to other constituents, allied or otherwise. Mm -hmm. um, in other words, we do a lot of acting upon the black public sphere rather than working with and collaborating with that black public sphere to actually take seriously that black people can diagnose, speak for, and articulate their own condition as well as how they imagine change um, in their communities. Mm -hmm. And how do you accomplish that? Well, I'm here. That's, a, <laughs> that's one way uh, to, to help. But obviously, I'm not here alone. There are mm -hmm. others that do it. Um, our universities, in many ways, as far as I'm concerned, both at uh, our publics and privates, um, have increased the distance in, in many ways over the last generation, let's say, two generations removed from the social movements of the 60s, have, uh, have become increasingly islands unto themselves. And I'm not just seeing this through my own lens, but the uh, American Academy of Arts and Sciences issued a report, a report a few years ago, and they said, look, humanities and social sciences more generally, as compared to STEM fields, are struggling. Mm -hmm. They're struggling with funding at the federal level, they're struggling with funding at the state level, and the solution to that struggle is for scholars to be more actively engaged off campus uh, to push outwardly. And so for me, being able to say that the black public sphere is a space that needs to bring the public into the university, as well as the university needs to go out to that black public sphere, makes everybody smarter. Mm. And so we're not surprised when policies don't work. <laughs> because we've done the homework, we've, we've collaborated, we've bought, brought the community into the conversation. Mm -hmm. Now, why do you think that it seems like a lot of the conversation today is about uh, mass incarceration as well as policing? And they're kind of separate but connected issues. Um, why do you think those two issues in particular have come to the fore in just in the last couple of years? Because some people were making a stink about it uh, a long time ago, and now that stink is spread, metastasized uh, all over the place, mm -hmm. and therefore we are now having a national conversation about it. I mean, I, uh, this is one instance in my lifetime where I can honestly say that ideas and scholarship and and the work the humanists do to tell stories, to write poetry, to write novels actually is working. Uh, because in every possible way imaginable, I can remember, for example, uh, John Singleton's film, Boys in the Hood, released in 1991. And at the end of that film, which is a film about inner city gang struggles and families uh, trying to uh, raise children uh, to survive and go off to college and all of the, the challenges that face communities like Compton um, uh, from the 90s forward. At the end of the film is an epigraph that says, um, today one in four uh, black men are under some form of correctional supervision. That was the work of 
the sentencing project led by Executive De Director Mark Maurer, who then went on to write a book called Race to Incarcerate. I think it was published in 1999 or so. Mm -hmm. Ten years later, Michelle Alexander wrote The New Jim Crow. And if you read, if, so if you, t if you draw a line from Boys in the Hood to the sentencing project's work, in 1999, first in 91, then in 99, to mm -hmm. Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, and my own work contributing, and Douglas Blackman's work, and dozens and dozens and dozens of other people writing around the space, that actually works. I mean, here we are in Boston, uh, Frederick Douglass and William Lloyd Garrison published uh, newspapers and magazines, pamphlets and petitions, and it worked. So that's why we are having this national conversation, because people have been deliberately and explicitly drawing our interest to it and compelling us by changing the narrative around these issues. Mm -hmm. And obviously, these are things that have been affecting uh, the black community for decades. Um, is it just that we have video of it now? Is, is that what changed? It's a big part of it, absolutely. I think that... Uh, you know, movement, finding the origin story of movements is always a bit of a needle in a haystack. So mm -hmm. um, uh, what we can say with, I think, some clarity in this moment is that for young people, um, the deaths of Trayvon Martin and Michael Brown together made for them the equivalent of Emmett Till's murder uh, in 1955 in Mississippi. So if you listen to a John Lewis or a Diane Nash, uh, two stalwarts of the civil rights movement, young people at the time, you know, they will tell you like so many others, it was because of Emmett Till's death that they decided they didn't want to grow up in a world where that could happen to them. Mm -hmm. And I think that young people um, who are in some ways older, some of these young people are actually older than John Lewis and Diane Nash then were then, uh, people like Alicia Garza and Philip Agnew and Ashley Yates, uh, DeRay McKesson, have simply said, we don't want to grow up in a society where this could happen to us. It could happen from a vigilante, uh, my term for George Zimmerman, um, or it could happen in the case of uh, Darren Wilson or any other officers who uh, resort to lethal force um, in the case of either criminal activity, uh, but certainly in the case of unarmed people or lawfully armed people. They, mm -hmm. just, they just didn't want to take it. Mm -hmm. And so that's the best that we know right now for coupling uh, this larger set of ideas and conversations that have been happening and also formerly incarcerated. We have to give them credit. We don't give them enough credit, but a lot of formerly incarcerated people have been building infrastructure now for 15, 20 years to tell their stories. Hmm. Um, these are not just stories of innocence, although there are plenty of those. These are also stories of the brutalization of a system that made it impossible for people who made mistakes to turn their lives around. And those stories are also very much inside of these communities. Because with a system of mass incarceration, you've also got massive numbers of people coming back to those uh, communities. And most of them are coming back and not only educating others in those communities, but doing the right thing. We also don't give credit as a, as a kind, I think, an underappreciated even policy area. We give almost no credit to black and brown people in their communities for actually helping to turn around violence in those communities. So a lot of those formerly incarcerated people have come back into those communities. All we talk about are recidivism rates. We don't talk about the people, whether they recidivate or not, say, don't make the same mistake I made. 
because this system is not set up for you as a young person to do stupid things and have a life afterwards. Mm -hmm. I think that's a missing chapter in our history as well as a missing chapter in our policy debates about how we should move forward from this system. Mm -hmm. You mentioned uh, the the election of, of President Obama as a moment when our country kind of rallied around this uh, u uniquely uh, wonderful moment. Mm -hmm. um, yep. Do you think that a lot of the discussion of race right now is uh, in, in part because of, uh, you know, his election? Absolutely. Uh, we, we knew overnight uh, that, uh, that the election of the first black president uh, created a backlash um, moment in our history that uh, really brought to the surface what uh, obviously was already there, which were deep racial resentments um, amongst uh, pockets of white America that felt overlooked, discarded, and unappreciated. So the language of, and I remember this very clearly, particularly in right-wing talk radio, but the language of the most liberal president in American history, he's a socialist, were cold words, proxies for his blackness and the uh, kind of takeover that was about to happen um, mm -hmm. because liberal had already been associated with the failed policies of big government associated with Lyndon Baines Johnson, of which Nixon was the great savior until he wasn't. And then, of course, Reagan really was the great savior mm -hmm. um, who fixed all of this mm -hmm. and righted the ship of wrong. And here was Obama, ironically enough, evoking Ronald Reagan, um, who would then unleash uh, the same spirit of backlash that uh, that that we're not going to move backwards. And so people showing up uh, when he was a candidate strapped to these meetings in these open carry states, um, the emergence of the Tea Party takeover and the midterm elections uh, all showed a powerful strain um, of racist populism in America uh, that then crystallized around a birther movement of which Donald Trump has been, you know, its leader up until maybe last week. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like uh, the central problem in American democracy, at least politically, has always been this uh, states' rights versus federal government uh, question, mm -hmm. uh, going back to going back to the founders. Um, and in the history of the United States, really, the federal government has long been uh, one of the strongest, uh, I guess, supporters of equality, whether it be, uh, you know, pushing for uh, the 13th Amendment and all the way through uh, to um, civil rights in the 50s. Do you think that there's a, a, a connection there between, um, you know, the f federal government's role as um, fighting for minority rights and uh, what's going on now? Yes. So the I mean, some of this is almost so conspiratorial, it sounds ridiculous, right? <laughs> um, but yes, I mean, part of Nixon's presidency was predicated. I mean, Nixon is a very complicated president. So on the good side, Nixon was the first person to implement, implement re in real terms, affirmative action mm -hmm. and made some significant black uh, cabinet uh, or administrative appointments uh, that kind of re represented a form of modern liberal republicanism, or I should say moderate republicanism uh, that we don't have uh, today, at least represented by the National Party. And uh, at the same time, though, he, he very much um, was invested in this kind of um, 
we're going to use tax policies and talk about shrinking government as a way of minimizing the real possibilities for a uh, equitable distribution of uh, of American rights and citizenship. I mean, and so the notion of big federal government being put in its place and shrinking uh, and being less accountable to the social fabric of our country uh, is inseparable from the racial politics and backlash to the civil rights era. Precisely because for that generation of Americans, for those uh, greatest generation members who are older and for baby boomers who were the political movers and shakers of that era, um, the civil rights movement had gone too far. And the black power movement had erupted as a way of actually putting in action on the ground uh, the very infrastructure needed to close the gap. It wasn't just good enough for these laws to have been passed. We actually needed to see immediate redress in a nation, as Lyndon Baines Johnson once said, that we're not all starting this race, you know, with with the same. Uh, we're not all at the at the start line with the same capacity. Mm-hmm. So that moment from Nixon eventually to Reagan, uh, Carter in the in between. Uh, ultimately was about making the government smaller and smaller and smaller so that it it might not, in fact, be able to live up to these possibilities. And we're living with that backlash. I mean, it's never really gone away. It's just waxed and waned, and it's it's waxed tremendously in the wake of the most liberal or socialist (laughs) Kenyan president. You forgot Muslim. Right, Muslim Kenyan Muslim president that that we've ever had. And it's, you know, Mm -hmm. it's it's not, I don't think you have to be a crazy person uh, to see those connections. Mm -hmm. Do you think that it's been a positive in the long run thing that what existed before the racial, you know, the, the... I don't know if you, if you go so far as to call it hatred, but at least the unease around uh, uh, race uh, among uh, a large number of white people, whether Obama's election kind of brought that out into the in, into the open air as opposed to keeping it under wraps. Uh, is, is it a good thing that it's now at least being it's seen for what it is, or is it a bad thing because now it's seen as somewhat acceptable? Hard to say. I think we're too much in the moment to see what happens next. I think um, the likelihood, according to polling data at least, that uh, Hillary Clinton will be our next president raises a distinct possibility for setting in motion even such things as, you know, federally, um, you know, federally sponsored best practices in our historical curriculum. You know, is possible uh, in that presidential moment or with that presidential outcome. Um, Taking seriously that our criminal justice system has to fundamentally shrink, not just because it's a budget issue, um, but that fundamentally it's a fairness issue. uh, And it has failed to make America safer for the communities that most suffer um, from crime and violence. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I think there are real possibilities, and those possibilities, I think, are enhanced by the visibility of racism, uh, racist rhetoric, and uh, the kind of discourse of law and order um, 
that can only be understood as a rejection of so much of the thoughtful, scientific, literary, activist-based work that people have been doing. It's not that much different than the discrediting of the civil rights activists uh, as being outside communist uh, agitators uh, who are stirring up trouble and violence in those communities. I mean, the great irony is that most white Americans who want to completely disown any racism in their hearts, despite implicit bias, um, will look back to the civil rights movement and say, we're a great country because of what happened then. <laughs> and part, and the only way that can really happen is if they don't actually know what really happened then. I mean, the, I mean, so there are some people with tremendous capacity for cognitive dissonance. I get that. But I do genuinely think that those people don't know. And partly we know because the Southern Poverty Law Center has been looking at civil rights history curriculums across the country. And they keep coming back. They've done two reports, one in 11 and 14. And they say, we do a terrible job in our state systems where we establish standards for teaching just civil rights history, nothing about the, the founding of the nation, just civil rights history. And most states are failing in ways that are remarkable um, because that should be an easy story to tell because at least if you just pick 1965 as an endpoint, <laughs> say we're gonna get you to this point, you, you, you know, you can say we got the job done. Well, Professor Khalil Jabran Mohammed, thank you so much for coming on. This was an excellent conversation. I, uh, I hope to hear more in the, in the future. Thanks Matt for having me. HKS professor Khalil Gibran Muhammad. Uh, he was also featured in the documentary The 13th, which I believe is on Netflix and is well worth the watch if uh, you get the chance. HKS PolicyCast is a production of Harvard Kennedy School. It's produced by Matt Cadwallader along with Natalie Montaner, Sarah Abrams, and Becky Wickle. Special thanks, as always, to Catherine Serafin for, help, for her help with distribution. You can follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast or find links to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, and elsewhere by visiting hkspolicycast.org. See you next week.